0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. Joy to see all of you. Why don't we ask the Lord for his help as we come to his word? Father, thank you for the many evidences of your kindness and grace that we have experienced so far this morning. And we pray that those would continue all the more for your great glory. We pray that your word will be our nourishment today that it will feed our souls, that it would fuel our obedience to you. Thank you for your kindness in speaking in such abundance and clarity and authority and conviction through your word. I pray that we would receive it now with open ears and eager hearts and minds. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The changing of the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington National Cemetery is quite a sight to see. If you've never been to DC and never seen it live, it's worth a few minutes of your time on YouTube sometime this week. It's, It's a moving example of honor, precision, solemn duty, and maybe most obviously, the passing along of an important mission from one person to the next person. These soldiers, they're called sentinels, stand watch over the tomb 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year, regardless of the weather. They have to meet really strict requirements and go through some pretty rigorous training in order to serve. And during the changing of the guard, a new sentinel, along with his or her commanding officer, meet the retiring sentinel at the center of a black mat in front of the tomb. The commanding officer says, pass along your orders. The retiring sentinel then says, post and orders, remain as directed. The new incoming sentinel then replies, orders acknowledged, and takes his or her place at post. And in one way or another, I I think we understand the importance of continuing a job that has been passed along to us from someone else. Someone has entrusted something really important to us, and so they're counting on us. There's a lot at stake. That could be as simple as picking up your child after school or practice after your spouse had already dropped them off, or it could be as complicated as taking over a generations-long family business. Especially, gentlemen, if after multiple reminders from your wife, you still forgot to pick up your kid. It is no small task. Not that I know anything about that. But it's important. But what if the work that was being passed along to you, what if the job being entrusted to you was one of eternal significance? That it would make an eternal difference in someone's life? What if the work being passed along to you was being passed along by the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Now that hits a little heavier. And it's not too far from what has actually happened in the transaction between Jesus and his people. It's not too far from the mission That Jesus has given to his church. But what is that mission exactly? What is it for? Who is it for? Why would Jesus entrust something so significant to us? And perhaps most importantly, how how in the world could we possibly hope to carry out a divine mission of such great importance with any hope, any degree of success? It is with those questions that we turn to God's word this morning. And so I will invite you to take your Bibles and meet up with me in the book of Acts chapter 1. For those of you who are still growing in familiarity with the Bible, the book of Acts is in the New Testament. It immediately follows the four Gospels. If you uh, don't have a Bible, or maybe forgot to bring it with you, you can turn over to page 909 in the Pew Bibles. Grab one of those, I encourage you to follow along. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please let that be our gift to you today. The book of Acts chapter one, beginning in verse one. Follow along as I read it out loud. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them, you stand looking into heaven this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven this is God's word we thank and praise him for it so this book of Acts is actually the second of a two-volume series that was written by Luke his first you might guess being the gospel of Luke And the extended title of this book, it might even be written that way in your Bibles, is often called the Acts of the Apostles. But it could just as easily, and maybe even more appropriately, be called the Acts of the Risen Jesus. Because in verse 1, we see that, that in the first book, Luke dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is that Jesus' work is actually not finished. Now, his atoning work of redemption certainly is finished. Jesus said as much. The penalty for sin has been paid in full. God's wrath against sin has been fully satisfied. Ah, but his work of building the church... And of gathering his people together was was actually just getting started and this passage in acts 1 shows us exactly how the risen Christ was going to do that we'll make a few observations of the text together first we see Jesus laying down a foundation for christian mission and that foundation is himself christ is The foundation. And we observe here a couple of key aspects to his person and work. First, there's this huge emphasis on Jesus' words. In just the first handful of verses, we observe Jesus teaching, commanding, promising, speaking about the kingdom. In Luke's parallel writing of this account from his gospel, uh, we shine even more light on the content, the substance of those words. In Luke 24, he, we have Jesus giving a master class to the disciples in biblical theology. He's showing them the Christ-centeredness of the Old Testament. He also goes over and over again the gospel with them, explaining that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. What's interesting, though, That in neither one of those accounts, in either Luke 24 or here in Acts 1, we we don't have record of Jesus doing things like feeding the poor or healing the sick or visiting the imprisoned. All things that he did do in his earthly ministry, not unimportant, but the emphasis here at this hinge point in salvation history is on the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. The other thing that we see here pretty clearly is that there's an emphasis on his resurrection. Verse 2, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days. And I just love this about Christianity. I hope you do as well. Christianity is not a worldview of wishful thinking. It is not built on some pie-in-the-sky theology. Here, Jesus is offering many proofs about the literal and the historical validity of his resurrection. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about this. He tells us that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's vanity, and you are still in your sins. So there is, there is a lot that is hinging on the resurrection. Without it, all of the words that, that Jesus had just spoken would have been, at best, good advice, and at worst, the ramblings of a raving lunatic who somehow was confused. He thought he was the unique son of God. But if he has been raised, game changer total game changer if he actually has been raised and he has sometimes I will get the question from folks about evangelism you know what things to say how to say it and I am by no means an expert but, but oftentimes what I will say is listen get to Jesus in the resurrection as fast as you can because if if we can get our arms around the resurrection then all of the things that spring from that tend to flow a lot easier, right? All of Jesus' claims to divinity, to be the unique son of God, the quality of his death, his perspective on the Bible as the word of God, and his perspective on relationships and money and human sexuality, all of that starts to to line up if we get the resurrection right. Now, at this point, some of you might be thinking, isn't this all a little obvious? (laughs) I mean... What else would be the foundation of the Christian mission other than Christ? But oh, how the false foundations of religious systems or self-justification or moralism tragically and easily creep in. I, I love the story of how Presbyterian minister Donald Barnhouse offered his picture of what a town or a society might look like if Satan was given complete control of it. Here's how Barnhouse described it. He said, all of the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, and the pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other and said, good day. There would be no cursing. The children, always fully obedient, would say yes sir and no ma'am, and the churches would be packed full every Sunday where Christ was never preached. Jesus is the foundation of Christian mission. He's the the cornerstone, the head of the church, the chief shepherd, the active and risen Lord. Now, at this point in our passage, I'd imagine the disciples are getting pretty jacked up, right? After three weeks of seeing the resurrected, Jesus, Peter, can you believe it? We've not touched his hands. We've seen him. We've heard him. Let's go talk to some people about this. But then, interestingly, we come to verse 4, which says, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Wait? Why would, Wait for what? Why, why should they wait? And it turns out that there was a resource that Jesus was going to provide them in his ascension, an essential power for this work. And the power for Christian mission and gospel work is found in the Spirit of God. Verse 4 continued. Wait, he says, for the promise of the Father. For John, baptized with water, but now you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Later in the passage, Jesus clarifies it a bit. He says that they'd receive power when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And this idea of the Spirit being poured out or given in this capacity would not likely have been unfamiliar to the disciples because peppered throughout the Old Testament were promises of a unique and powerful outpouring of God's Spirit. Just a couple of examples. Ezekiel 36 says, I, the Lord, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. Another uh, that was quoted just a page later uh, in the book of Acts by Peter comes from Joel chapter 2, where we hear, in the last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so you see, this this was no ordinary power, the power, of course, that we need for regular Christian living. This was the promise of something extraordinary, a baptism, an immersion, a filling of the Spirit. And without that, the mission was doomed to failure. That's why Jesus told them to wait. They needed a a supernatural power to take on a task so Herculean as continuing the work of the exalted Christ. They needed it, and so do we. This came by way of a surprising and somewhat welcome illustration to me a handful of weeks ago as I laid motionless on the cold floor of my basement When halfway through a a fairly routine morning workout, I threw my back out, pretty badly, actually. I finally was able to turn around and crawl to a chair and get to my feet and eventually to my doctors where he gave me a a shot for pain, prescribed some steroids and told me that I needed to cozy up real closely with a bottle of Advil for a handful of days. Uh, Needless to say, I was not good for much of anything. I had no strength in myself at all for even the simplest of tasks walking getting up and down off the couch a few other things I won't mention but one of the lessons that the Lord reminded me of that week was I am not nearly as strong as I think I am I needed help I needed power outside of myself and so for every Christian how we need The power of God's spirit for Christian mission. And this power, interestingly, cannot be earned through good works or through religious ceremony. It actually doesn't come from from within. It's not from our wit or wealth or will, which is the way that human power is very often attained. This power could only be received. This power is given by God, to every Christian, every person who puts their faith in Jesus and is united to him by that faith and is absolutely essential for Christian mission. This is one pitfall to avoid, you know, this overestimating what we can do for God. He's so fortunate to have us on his team. But there's an equally harmful pitfall that we can make on the other side, and that is actually underestimating what God can do through you in the power of the Spirit. And so I think we all have a tendency to probably lean one way or the other, overestimating our own strength or underestimating God's strength and the power of the Spirit. Now all this talk about spiritual power begs a very interesting question. What is it for? Why give the Spirit? What is is this power actually supposed to do or accomplish The disciples certainly had their assumptions. We we see it in verse 6. It's a question that John Calvin said contains as many errors as it does words. We might look at it again. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Fair question, but it really misses in a lot of ways. And in Jesus' response, we we observe another key aspect to this kingdom mission, and that's the strategy. The strategy for the mission is witness, spirit-empowered witness to Christ and his gospel. Jesus' words, verse 7, he says, It's it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed, but here's what is going to happen. You will receive power, and you will be my witnesses. You see, as it often was in the ministry of Jesus, there was a a misunderstanding about kingdom. We know that Jesus was a different kind of king, come to initiate, grow, and eventually consummate a different kind of kingdom. But the dream that they were thinking about was this kind of earthly, socio-political kingdom that they'd often default back to. They also misunderstood their role in it, The spirit was coming to empower, to be sure, but he wasn't coming to empower for social greatness or political advancement. He was coming to empower for witness to the king. And so the the realization of of Christ's kingdom, Christ's reign was to come through spirit-empowered witness by his people. Them, they were actually going to do it in the power of the spirit. Them, us, Christ's continuing ministry by his spirit through his people. Now, what makes a good witness? Well, for starters, I think there's this element of credibility that's very important. There's a consistency, right, between the message and the life of the witness. We see that played out across the New Testament. We might call it the gospel life or adorning our lives with the gospel. But by far, by far, the most important thing about being an effective witness is testifying to the truth, speaking about the things that one has seen or heard. A witness points to an objective truth that exists beyond themselves. And so it's no accident that the word witness appears some 29 times, give or take, in the book of Acts. And it's no accident that this book records as many as 40 testimonies or spoken messages about Jesus. The rest of the New Testament just affirms this strategy over and again. One example, 2 Peter chapter 1, he writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Now you might say, what about those of us who aren't eyewitnesses? And that's a fair question. Realize none of us are apostles, those personally chosen by Jesus during his time on the earth, those who are eyewitnesses, but... But this passage in 2 Peter continues, and it's so helpful. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place, knowing that, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you see the encouragement? Those of us who have the Spirit and the Word, the Scripture, actually have this more fully confirmed substance about the truth of Jesus. This means that we can testify about him with the utmost confidence, that there's no need to shrink back. He's given us a great resource. There's also a big challenge here, as we think about Christian witness to continue prioritizing the simplicity, ordinary nature, but extraordinary power of Christian witness as the priority of the church's mission. Listen, there's a lot of good that we can do in the world. Much of it we should do. But we must also take great, great care, brothers and sisters, to not replace the biblical strategy for mission with good second options. People have asked me before what is the evangelistic strategy of Old North Church? Sometimes people will ask ask our staff. And what they're usually asking is what programs are we running? What events are we hosting? And yet my answer is often always our evangelistic strategy get ready for it is our people. It's you. It's your day in and day out, personal and public, clear and consistent witness to the Lord Jesus. And so the exhortation is, friends, keep going. Keep at it. Because this is the strategy for mission. But here again, we're faced with another question. We have the power, we know why we have the power. But who is it for? The disciples definitely had their assumptions. He said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the the kingdom to Israel? And yet, as he so often does, Jesus leads them along to a much broader scale and scope. And that scale and scope for Christian mission and for kingdom work is the world. (laughs) It's for everybody. This news about the Messiah come and died and risen and soon to be exalted is, is for everybody. Verse 8, you will receive power and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. Power was coming. And it was coming for the purpose of Christian witness. And it was coming for everyone. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, boys and girls, every race, tribe, and tongue has got to hear this good news. It's so good. It's for everybody. Interesting, as we look at the big picture outline of the book of Acts, if we were to zoom out, you know, to 30,000 feet, the breakdown of the book goes something like this. Chapters 1 to 7 focuses on Jerusalem, chapters 8 to 11 on Judea and Samaria, and chapters 12 through 28 on gospel growth to the ends of the earth. And it ends with the Apostle Paul in Rome, which at the time was the capital city of the known world. And these concentric circles of gospel witness provide a really helpful framework for us. I think we all have access to them at some form or another. The venue might be as simple as Christian hospitality in your own home or opening the Bible regularly with your children or a colleague at work. The venue might be attending a community Bible study or participating in a regional trip to Camp Burton or to Columbus or to Wheaton, all places we've gone the recent past, or even finding ways to engage the ends of the earth. This is Rista. Rista is a Serbian pastor who has previously gone through a multi-year pastoral training program that, that we, that you, that Old North Church has funded through our partner, Sean Martin, and his ministry at Leadership Resources. And in this picture, this is significant, this is a week or two old, Rista is actually teaching. He's teaching. And this is significant because here we have a pastor who, over the last number of years, has been trained for ministry by one of our gospel partners, and now he's teaching other pastors all across Eastern Europe, the ends of the earth. This is Joshua. He is a Kenyan pastor. Who is standing with his congregation, and he has recently graduated from yet another ministry training program that's connected to not one but two of our gospel partners. One is Carol Perkins, who's actually in transit back to Africa right now, and the other is an organization called the Timothy Initiative that trains and launches church planters all over the globe. <laughs> the gospel is growing folks. It's growing. The kingdom, the reign of King Jesus is expanding. And it's expanding through the faithful witness of his people, by his spirit, to the ends of the earth from this little command center on Herbert Road. That takes a work of power and the spirit I hope you're encouraged by that. I hope you're I hope you're challenged in that to continue in this work. In fact, I wonder if you'd be willing to just write down in your prayer journal or on the back of your compass to to pray for Joshua and for Rista and for Sean and for Carol this week. I wonder if you'd you'd continue to grow in your generosity as we work to get the gospel into every nook and cranny every corner of our families and our homes and our community and even as the Lord gives us influence our world. Because we have to remember something very important. This mission will not last forever. In fact, that is the final aspect of this passage that we need to glean. The end of mission. And that ends both the end game and the end goal is worship. It is the glory, the exaltation, the worship of Jesus the King. Verse 9, And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And the curtain closes. It's kind of an odd ending. Here we have the risen Jesus, though. He's he's literally lifted up. In a cloud of glory, the cloud often symbolized the glory, the presence of God, this symbolizes Jesus' supreme reign over all things. He is above all things. It indicates his return to his Father into the heavenly dimension where he will rule and operate from that command post to build his reign and kingdom. And then we have the disciples who are kind of stargazing a bit. And seemingly out of nowhere, these two men in white appear, probably angels, but they appear with some helpful commentary. Why are you staring out into the sky? This Jesus will will return. He'll return in the same way he came, bodily, spatially, certainly in great glory. And the implicating question is this. Why are you looking up when you should be going out? And in that question, we really get the full essence of this passage coming together. Jesus' ascension is the initiating event that launches his next season of ministry in heaven, and he's doing it by his spirit, through the witness of his people to the world for his glory, or maybe more simply, Jesus going up propels our going out. Jesus going up in glory propels our going out on mission. And go we must because it will not last forever. Jesus is returning. This is, the, this is the promise here. And dear friends, that should both inspire us and bring great urgency. There is joy for those in Christ that one day they will be reunited face to face with their king. But in equal urgency... For those who have rejected Christ as king and remain under the wrath of God, those whose sins have not been forgiven. In fact, if you're here this morning and you've been contemplating some of the claims of Jesus, the idea that he might be the unique son of God, that his sacrifice was sufficient for the forgiveness of sins, I would plead with you today, don't wait another moment. Put your faith in him today. You know, I appreciate Old North as a church. We will never try to emotionally manipulate you into a decision to follow Jesus. We want you to be thoughtful and count the cost. But simultaneously, there is a a deep sense of urgency. We know not the day or the hour. But the end of mission is more than just an expiration date. It's also a goal, the goal of the glory and worship of the exalted Christ. We know this to be true, not just eschatologically as it relates to the last days, right? That one day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's everywhere. And that every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's also true as it relates to the context of this event. Because what we don't catch here in Acts 1 is found in a really helpful little nuance in the parallel account in Luke 24 that we mentioned. Go back and read it this week. For now, just listen. Luke 24 and verse 51. While Jesus blessed them, he parted from them, and he was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Now that, that is the proper response to the exalted Christ, isn't it? Worship, glory, glory, Adoration. This is the goal. This is the end, the desired outcome of mission because he is worthy. Do you believe he is? Jesus going up propels our going out, and we go so that in the end, in the end, we don't win an argument, we don't make a point. We don't stick it to all the people who don't agree with us. We don't transform the culture so that in the end, everywhere people might recognize him for who he is and worship him. Jesus' is going up launches and propels our going out. I'll leave you with some challenging words. And encouraging words from John Piper's helpful book called Let the Nations Be Glad. He says it this way He says that worship is the goal of missions and that mission exists because worship does not. And when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. So let's get after it, guys. Let's get after it. Jesus is going up, propels our going out. He's provided all the resources that we need. He's laid a foundation. He's given a power. He's shown us a strategy. He's measured the scale and he's promised an end. And all of that to propel us forward for his great glory. Jesus' going up really does propel our going out. So let's go. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. I pray, even now, as we come to the table of forgiveness, that you will forgive us for not seeing the glory of Jesus clearly enough. Forgive us for our apathy in the work give us a glimpse of him a glimpse of his glory forgive us for supplementing the strategy for kingdom and Christian mission for lesser things forgive us for relying on our own strength or for underestimating your power in us forgive us for building on unsteady foundations We are so thankful for the redeeming work of our Lord, and we turn to that work even now. We pray in his name, amen.